Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 2, 4 through 9. The word of God speaks to us like this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is God's word to us. Good morning, family. We doing okay? It's good to be with you guys today. If you've got a Bible open to the passage that was just read, Genesis chapter 2, uh, we'll be in verses 4 to 17. That's the entirety of our passage today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Chad Kinster. I serve as one of our pastors, teaching pastor here downtown in this series. As John mentioned, we're in week four, but it's been a lot of fun already, and there's a lot to get to today. So um, I want to jump right into it. If you're not a Christian, if you're here today, um, Considering what you believe, man, it's a privilege to open God's word with you. We're so, so glad that you're here. If you're a regular with us or if you're a guest, however you're coming in today, it's a privilege to open God's word with you. And if you would, please pray for me. I'll pray for you and we'll get to work. Sound good? Hey, in the quietness of this moment, if you're up for it this morning, I just would encourage you just to ask God to speak to you. Even ask him to settle you a bit this morning. All the things racing in your mind. Ask him to help you to trust that his presence is safe. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And if people in this room's lives are anything like mine, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise in my day to day. And I'm asking that in this moment, you would at least, by the power of your spirit, silence all of that noise. And I'm asking that you would be the noise. That you would reframe all the noise that's coming to us all the time. And you would give us new perspective with you at the center. The noise inside of us, the noise outside of us, that you would be the center and you'd reframe all of that. 
Father, I know that there is power in your word that is before us today. I ask now as we open it that you would keep us from reading Genesis like it's a book back there in history, thousands of years removed from us as though it's not relevant and just something we're rehearsing in religious ceremony. God, would you save us from that? We declare today that your word is living and active in this moment as much as it was when it was first penned. And so would you speak into us? Would we not so much read your word, but would your word read us? I pray. And I offer this prayer in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen. Amen. Well, we sat there together with our arms on the center console, and we had the biggest smiles on our face. This photo captures a moment that I clearly tried to trap in a bottle best I knew how. My son, who's eight now, he was five years old at the time, we had just spent a Saturday morning mowing the lawn together. He didn't so much mow the lawn as he just paced with me back and forth as I mowed the lawn. And after mowing the lawn, we we grabbed an ice-cold soda together, and I tried to explain to him, walking back out into the lawn, the beauty of a well-striped yard, pointing this out to him, sucking back a Diet Coke. After that, we went to Lowe's together and grabbed some things we just needed around the house, and we we were having a good day just spending time together in the mundane stuff of life. This was the regular stuff but it just felt really special. And then he did this. We got into my old Jeep and I could feel him looking at me. You know that moment where you can just feel like eyes on you. I could feel him looking at me and I saw him watch me as I put my arm up onto the console. I looked over at him and then he put his arm up there just just like me. I looked at him in the face and he had the biggest smile on his face. No words were exchanged, just, I'm here with you, Dad. He was smiling, I was smiling, starting to tear up a little bit, and then I mustered the strength to turn over the engine and start the drive home. And it was in that moment on the drive home I remember thinking, he's learning. This life next to me, he's learning who he is and what he's supposed to do just by being with me. He's learning this, identity and purpose. And I remember praying on the way home, God, this is how it's supposed to be for me with you, that I learn who I am and I learn what I'm supposed to do in your presence. Please help me, God, please help me. Identity and purpose. I start with that today because that's what's driving the passage in front of us today. If I could shape it this way for you, if the dynamic of a father and child relationship were a color, go with me here. If the dynamic of a father-child relationship were a color, this passage would be saturated in that color. Like music recurring that shows up in a movie or a TV show to highlight a repeated theme that shows up again and again and the same song shows up again as that theme does, the music of fathering shows up over and over in this passage, identity and purpose. 
And if you've been with us now through these three weeks in the study of Genesis, these themes have been on repetition. They've been at the heart of the first three sermons, and that should tell us how important they are. These themes are critical. These themes are also the two places that we're most confused as a culture, identity and purpose. And so what we're gonna talk about today is gonna hit at those two places of utmost importance, and it's also going to touch every part of your life, including your frustration at work including your frustration at work. And so as we open to Genesis chapter two, there's a couple of things that are really important for context. The book of Genesis is structured around 10 divisions or 10 sections. And each of those divisions or sections is signaled to us by a phrase that shows up, the same phrase. And that phrase is first introduced to us here in our passage today in verse four. Look at it with me. It says, these are the generations. That's the phrase. These are the generations, it says, in this passage of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, this phrase, these are the generations, in, in essence means that every section turned, every sort of like scene change, it means what you're about to read is a further development of fill in the blank, whatever comes after the phrase. And so here it means what you're about to read is a further development of what happened at creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's not so much a a second telling of creation, but a continuation of and a narrowing in, particularly on the creation of man. This passage before us today is answering the question, who is this one? Who is this one that's been made in the image of God, and what's he supposed to do? Identity and purpose. The second thing that shows up in our passage that's really massive for the way that we read this is the title that's given to God in this passage. The same title that's given to God here will track through chapter four, and it's the title Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. So in chapter one, if you remember at creation, all we got 35 times was Elohim, 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 Elohim. But in chapter two, we get Yahweh Elohim. The writer uses the personal and covenant name for God because he wants us to see that the God of creation shouldn't be thought of as detached. The God of creation isn't distant. He's not in a press box watching. Instead, he is the one who desires to initiate relationship with man. It's as if to say he hasn't just made us to bear his image and then leave the rest to us to figure out what we're to do with that. What's happening with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, this is on-the-job training where he wants to walk with us as we learn what it means to reflect him and represent him just like a good father would do with his child. Identity and purpose. And so let's get to it. We've got three moves today as we track through these verses. The nature of man, the placement of man, and the purpose of man. Nature, placement, and purpose. Pick up with me in verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. But then, here it is, verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. 
and the man became a living creature. I'm not going to spend long on this first point because we talked at length last week. Pastor Josh led us in what it is to be made in the image of God, but it shows up again here, and it's worth repeating that when it comes to man, when it comes to humanity, you and me, God has taken a physical interest that goes beyond what he's done with the rest of creation. A physical interest. In verse 7, it says that God gets his hands in the dirt. He forms the man from dust, carefully forms. We almost get the picture of a potter going to work and forming something that he would be so proud of that it would be a signature piece, even something that would have his own image on it. And then after forming, it says that God breathed life into the man. Here it is, we should almost gasp before reading it the right way. The sovereign comes close. The sovereign comes close. Scholar Derek Kidner says it this way, the term breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this act was an act of giving as well as making, it was even an act of self-giving. There are shadows here of God as a proud father wearing scrubs in the delivery room and he's beaming with pride as he's meeting his child, the birth of his child in whom he sees his own likeness. This is the music of fathering I told you about showing up again and again. And so two things become clear about the nature of man. Two things become really clear about the nature of you and me. Number one, the creation of man is marked with undeniable goodness and thought from God. Undeniable goodness and thought. Hey, it's no wonder that every person that you see, it's no wonder that every person on the planet has captured inside of them at the same time so much dignity and potential. Every single person. From the, from the most undereducated to the most well-educated, from the least resourced to the most resourced, every person is marked with unbelievable dignity and potential. And of course they are, because those are marks of their maker. It all flows from him. And the second thing we learn about the nature of man is that man is entirely dependent upon God to know both himself and God. What it says here is that man is made from the dust of the ground. And if we're reading in Hebrew, we would have picked up a play on words. Adam gets his name from the ground from which he was made. The Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. Adam was made from Adamah. The essence of humanity, the, the essence of humanity is so, rely, so reliant upon a source outside of ourself not only the ground, but the God. We don't self-create, we were created. We don't bring ourselves into being, we're brought into being. And so when you see this, listen, identity, it's entirely impossible. Adam made from Adamah, and that brought from the living God, the Lord God who breathed. It's entirely impossible for us to have an understanding of ourselves or of God apart from the Lord God who made us. How could we possibly understand those things if it's not made known to us? And so our identity, your identity, who you are, the worth that you have, and you have it because your maker bestowed it upon you, the value that you have, all of those things, identity, worth, and value are entirely attached to the Lord God 
who gave you being. That's what we learn about the nature of man. The second thing, the placement of man. Let's pick up reading in verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made it to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here God is planting a garden. And once again, he's close to creation. He's close to it, even close enough. If with man, he got his hands in the dirt, here he's planting and he's got dirt under his fingernails. The father is readying the house to make it a home. Here's the music of fathering again. After God finished planting, it says he places man in the garden. You have this language of planting and placement. We've already had the language of forming and breathing, now planting and placing. These are unmistakable terms that clue us into how intentional God was to initiate a relationship with us. You see, God could have put man anywhere. He could have formed him and then just dropped him off, you know, like a, some sort of survival show. See if he can get back home, drop you off. He could have put man anywhere. He could have placed him outside of the garden and told him to spend all of his days in search for the garden. And if he could ever find it, that's where I'll be. But instead, God places him right in the midst of the garden sanctuary as if to say, I want you here with me. I want you here with me. And this is what makes the message of the Bible so different than literally all other religions and all the others man is searching for God. And all the others, man is working his way to God. But here, God is the one initiating. God is bringing man to his presence. God is initiating with man. And this is happening, guys, in Genesis chapter 2. This is the beginning. This is not some later development that God all of a sudden gets nice and initiates with us. He's initiating with us from jump. The intention from the beginning was that God and man would share a non-anxious presence together. That nothing about man would be anxious in the presence of God and nothing about God would be anxious in the presence of man. This is the pattern the whole way through. And everything we hear about the garden is about God's radical generosity to provide everything for man. The name Eden itself, the Garden of Eden, the name Eden literally means luxury or delight. God is stopping at nothing to provide everything that was needed for man to flourish, and not just base level needs, but like everything for it to be a delight or a luxury. Verse nine tells us that God didn't just provide food, but he provided good food. It's not just a garden, it's a beautiful garden. God even goes so far in verse 16 to say, Adam, you have free run of this place. You have free run. Access to everything is yours except one tree. And we'll talk about that later. But look at all of it. Everything is yours. You got free run of this place. I don't want you to ask permission. You've got permission. Enjoy. Here again, the color and the music of fathering is showing up bright and loud. You can't help but hear a father saying, everything I have is yours. Everything. It's the father's good pleasure, Jesus is gonna say in the New Testament, it's the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Everything. 
So Eden was beautiful, Eden was good, but best of all, God was there. Eden was good and beautiful, but God was there. And that's what set it apart with the placement of man in the garden. What the writer is doing is he's stacking mounds of evidence. You can't help but read this passage and just go, God is good. Look at all that he's doing. Look at all that he's unfolding. He's got not just generosity, but lavish generosity. If all of his possessions are in a bucket, God just dumps it out. Lavish generosity, keeping nothing back. And what's interesting is if you're like me, studying Genesis chapter 2, looking at it this morning, you can't help but go, there's a rebellion coming in chapter 3. You can't help but sort of have the rebellion of chapter 3 in your periphery, out of your side eye, and you're reading Genesis 2 and you're going, this is so good. He's forming man. He's breathing with this like kiss of life. This closeness, this proximity, he's placing man. He's giving him a beautiful home to live in. Everything is yours. Everything is at your disposal. This is so good. How could you mess this up? Why would you mess this up? Please don't mess this up. And I think that's how we're supposed to see this. The sheer volume of God's goodness, the sheer volume of his generosity is meant to sort of soften us. It's meant to sort of draw us in. It's meant to sort of give us this awe so that when we get to chapter three, we gasp like we're supposed to gasp. We feel the collapse of it all. So you have this nature of man dependent on God, but God close. You have this placement of man right in the presence of God. And the third thing today, where we'll spend most of our time, the rest of our time, the purpose of man, the purpose of man. So everything in our passage today, if you're tracking with me, it's all been building to this point. The forming of man, the planting of Eden, the placing of man, And now pointing to the commissioning of man, the question becomes not just who is he, but what is he supposed to do? What's he supposed to do? What's his purpose, identity and purpose? Look at 15 with me. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden, here it is, to work it and to keep it. (laughs) The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, I don't know how you read that. Pastor, you just told me that everything in this passage is building to this crescendo. You likely probably hear that as a bit anticlimactic. That's a really weird high point of the movie. You mean everything's just leading to this? Hey, work it and keep it. Everything's just sort of going there. You say, hey, listen, no one wants to talk about work on Sunday. Can we not do that today, please? Maybe you thought that work, everything pointing to this moment, maybe you thought that work was actually just the curse of sin, that Adam and Eve didn't work at all, and then they sinned, and that God's like, now you gotta work. Maybe your vision of the Garden of Eden was more like this never-ending vacation on a nude beach somewhere in the Caribbean where Adam and Eve are just sort of lounging and sipping on mimosas or something. That's sometimes what I like to think it is. But that's not the biblical reality. When you pull all of this together, everything that we've been looking at, when you pull all of this together, the blessing in chapter one to have dominion over the whole world under God's authority, 
to fill it, to subdue it. What's happening here in essence is God is putting Adam's arm up onto the center console with his, looking out the windshield together at the beauty of Eden and saying, Adam, I want you to do what I've been doing. Let's take Eden to the ends of the earth and let's do it together. You see, all the same language that's been used to describe the work that God's been doing of forming and filling creation is now shared with Adam and Eve. Work it, cultivate it, keep it, protect it, subdue it, fill the earth with the glory of God like the waters cover the seas. Adam, I want you to bring order to the chaos. All of that is the very work that God has been doing and now he shares it with man. That's not gonna happen just by osmosis. You can't take Eden to the ends of the earth by magic. It's gonna happen by work and by effort. This is what theologians have called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. This is God's blessing and command for humanity to grow from the garden to cities. From the garden to cities, to fill the earth, to develop it with every aspect of culture, language, art, food, music, business, philosophy, science, and on and on. I heard one professor once say that God fully intended for Adam and Eve to split the atom. Have dominion, fill the earth. It's not surprising that the Bible starts with God and his people in a garden, but the Bible ends in Revelation 21 with God and his people in a perfected garden city. And so I told you from the start today that this has everything to do even with your frustration at work. <laughs> you see, work was a part of God's plan from the beginning. Work's not a part of the fall. It's not a part of sin. Work isn't sort of this necessary evil, but work in the beginning was an essential good. When we work, what we're doing is we're imitating the Lord God who is himself a creator, a gardener, and a cultivator. Think of it. Think of it with me for a second. One of the holiest acts of worship that Adam and Eve could do was to bring God glory through their work to cultivate and extend the garden. Like doing the mundane stuff of mowing the lawn and enjoying a well-striped yard and extending the garden was some of the holiest worship that Adam and Eve could do. This is why you and I can't compartmentalize this one sacred hour on Sunday from the 60, 80 hours that you work in a given week as though that's somehow separate or secular. God intended that all of our work would be sacred. All of our work would be sacred because in our work we're reflecting him. And so notice for Adam and Eve, all of this was happening in the context of the seventh day. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how day seven didn't have evening and morning, but it's left open-ended because God intended all days to be lived out of the Sabbath. And so they're working, they're doing all of this work from rest with God. They're doing all of this work from presence with God, not to achieve rest, but from rest. Meaning Adam and Eve weren't working for the weekend. They were working and it was always weekend. They weren't working to prove themselves in any way. They weren't working to prove anything to God or to get his presence. They were working in his presence and from his presence. Author Nancy Percy says it this way. The ideal human existence is not an eternal leisure or an endless vacation. 
or even a monastic retreat into, a prayer, into prayer and meditation, but creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Our calling isn't just to go to heaven, but to cultivate the earth. It's not just to save souls, but it's also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. And so you say, okay, pastor, you've drug it on this long. Good Bible lesson. Thank you for all of that. That's all well and good, but that's not how my work feels. That's not how my work feels. Maybe you would say, you're talking about work as though that's the crescendo, but I hate my job. I actually don't like my job. I actually, every Sunday around 5 p.m. start to feel the weekend blues because I know Monday is coming. I hate waking up on Mondays. Listen, I totally get that. And where I want to make the turn to the land today is that that has everything to do with those two trees standing in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know how the story goes. I don't have to teach you this today. The story goes that since Genesis 3, instead of bringing order to chaos, instead of Adam and Eve putting the serpent in his place, Adam and Eve chose to listen to the serpent over whom they had dominion, by the way. Adam and Eve didn't have to listen to the serpent. They have dominion over everything. Shut up, serpent, is what should have been said in Genesis 3. But they listened to the serpent. Instead of bringing order to chaos, what they chose to do was multiply chaos. They chose the wrong tree. And we've been joining them in multiplying chaos ever since. You see, so work was intended to be good. It was intended to be from rest in God's presence with everything that you already needed provided for you. But because of the fall, work now feels like a necessary evil, doesn't it? It doesn't feel good. We work in pursuit of rest. We work for vacations and trinkets and toys. We work for approval, not from those things. We work to provide and it almost feels like there's never enough. Never enough. Dr. Tim Keller once said, I think really helpful here, the problem with your work, my work, isn't so much your job. You're like, I don't like my job. Well, the problem with your job isn't so much your job. The problem with our jobs is the work under our work. And what he means by that is all the negative stuff that you bring to your work that's inside of you. What makes your job really demanding isn't the job itself, it's all the things inside of you that are demanding as you go to work. You say, what do you mean? I'm talking about the never-ending treadmill of performance. Some of you are so caught up in just meeting the demands and expectations and performance reviews that you don't even know who you are anymore. All of your significance is found there. The need that we all feel and have to varying degrees to be significant or important or needed, the fight for the positive opinions of other people. If we could just be approved of in order to silence that inner voice of shame in an attempt to convince ourselves that we really do matter and have value. 
the forces of inflation and competition that fills our work. We look to our jobs for security to give us money, to give us a sense of self, to give us stability so that if anyone ever abandons us, it's okay because I got it. Do you see how badly we need a reshaping of identity and purpose? And that's what's driving the arrival of Jesus. Please lean in with me here. This is the best thing I got to say today. Jesus didn't show up to remove work. Jesus didn't show up to make work irrelevant. Jesus didn't show up to promise you one day that you could go to a heaven where there is no work. Work is a good thing from the beginning and work will always be a good thing because we'll still be working with God in eternity. Why Jesus came, Jesus came to bring order to the chaos inside of us before God. He came to deal with the work under our work. Jesus came, if I can say it this way, Jesus came to bring back rest with God so that you could live from that rest instead of for that rest. Jesus came to bring a word to that inner voice of shame that tells you that you're not worthy and you never will be. Remember what Jesus said in his dying breath on the cross. It is finished. Jesus came to reunite you and to realign you with an enduring purpose, not to build your kingdom, but the kingdom of God, to live for the glory of God, to spread a passion for his name, even in your work. Jesus came to bring you healing to the work under your work so that you could know in your work and in your life, who is your boss really? Who is your boss really? What Jesus came to do, if I can drop it down to the bottom shelf, what Jesus came to do was to put your arm back on the center console with the Father so that you could live in his presence and not apart from it. Colossians chapter three, verse 23 says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily. Work with everything inside of you. Why? For as to the Lord and not for man. Not for man. That's a massive shift. If we could just take a very familiar verse and really digest it, it would deal with so much of the work under our work. Who's your boss, really? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing, verse 24, that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. It's the creation mandate. Maybe you've got an entry-level job just making sales calls, or maybe you've got a top-level job running an operation. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle of all that. It is the creation mandate to do whatever you do to bring order to chaos to the best of your ability. God has dealt with the work under the work and is still dealing with you with the work under the work so that you can actually do your work for God's glory and the benefit of others. Your work really matters. It was all leading to this, for God to place Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. So I wanna end today with three quick questions. Number one, the question is this. What is the garden that God's placed you in? What's the garden that God's placed you in? Maybe that is marriage for you. What would it look like for you to cultivate it and to keep it? 
What, what, what garden has God placed you in with your job? God has asked you not to just perform for expectations, but to cultivate and to keep. Do you realize that your discipleship to Jesus has everything to do with your nine to five and how you answer emails? What garden has God placed you in if you're a student at school? What would it look like to be there to work heartily as to the Lord and not for your teachers? Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. What garden has God placed you in? The second question is this. I said three. The second question. What would it look like to work seriously for the flourishing of the garden where God has placed you? What would it look like to work seriously? What would it look like so that wherever you are, you're like, I hate that cubicle. What would it look like to work seriously for the flourishing of that cubicle? Maybe you'll never be there forever, but you'll leave it better than you found it. And you'll do that for the glory of God and the good of others. What would it look like for you to work seriously for the flourishing of the garden where God's placed you? And here's the third question. Where is the unrest and where is the chaos inside of you? The work under your work. Where are the places where you need God to meet you? I'm talking about places of insecurity and fear and rivalry and competition and self-doubt and unbelief and despair and giving up and on and on. Where, Where is the work under the work that's all the time driving you in your work, that if you could just deal with that, you might work better? Where, where do you need God to meet you? Wherever that is, is exactly the place he wants to expose. Not to shame you, but to save you. So my son and I sat there <laughs> with our arms on the center console And I never knew before this week how much that little moment could teach me the deep truths of Genesis chapter two, where God says, look at the world with me. Look at the world with me. Let's take Eden to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. God, I pray today that we would understand that we don't have to figure ourselves out, but the invitation of Genesis chapter two is to come into your presence and to let you sort things out. So God, I pray where anyone in this room is confused about themselves or their worth or their value or even their purpose, I pray today that because of what we've done here, they would know that there's an invitation to you, that you'll actually guide us and lead us in that process. Thank you that from the beginning, your intention was that we would have a non-anxious presence with you and you with us, where we don't fear what you'll say, we just simply know that you've sent your son on our behalf to say something of peace. God, help us to believe that. And I also pray, God, that you'd help us to believe that you're withholding nothing of good from us. That the reason Jesus came was to realign us to an enduring purpose for your kingdom's sake. I offer this in Jesus' name. Amen.